Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. I want to ask if the guys in the back could just flash up the text for today. I want to look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. If you guys could actually just flash up the text of that in the ESV, that would be great for now. And if you have your Bibles in, 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 where you're sitting, I want you to turn to that with us. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Uh, we're going to read the whole passage together. This 100 things series that we're preaching through, it's a lot of really huge texts. And so we're not always going to be able to read through the whole thing. But this one, I think uh, it's important to just hear it in its full context, okay? So Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother. Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You know, the the message this morning, obviously, is from the story of Cain and Abel. That's another one of the drawings that our brother Heath has done for this week. And I don't know if it shows up well on the slide, but I've asked him any time blood shows up in any of the pictures to not make it black and white, but to make it in bright red to show us running symbol throughout that these 100 things we're talking about from the Bible are tied together by one theme. And that is that blood, and specifically the blood of Jesus Christ, redeems a lost and fallen creation, including the souls of men and women. It is spilled blood that caused a lot of the problems on the earth, and it is the spilled blood of Christ that is redeeming a fallen world. So that's going to be a very important thing you'll be looking for. That's an awesome drawing. I hope you guys are going to enjoy seeing the drawings that Heath is doing week after week. And, and here's, here's the, uh, the thing about this story. It's familiar to many of us, but I am convinced that we haven't fully understood 
the depth, uh, the significance of this story to explain everything that we see in the world today. The title of the message, if I could give it a more flashy title, would be Murder One. Right? I mean, Murder One. Because it's, you know, murder in the first class. It's, it's premeditated murder. Uh, it's also the first murder. So if you give all the murders a serial number, Cain has the horrible distinction of being the guy who did the first one. And as you think about this story and about two brothers who had such a horrible um, fallout that one would put the other to death, it reminds us that in our own world there's a lot of messed up stuff. I want to tell you the story about this woman. Maybe you've heard of her, Catherine. A lot of her friends called her Kitty, uh, Kitty Genovese. In March of 1964, on Friday the 13th, uh, this woman was brutally raped and stabbed to death in front of a store in Queens, New York. She'd lived there pretty much most of her life, and the man who killed her when he was later caught and questioned by the police said, you know, it's nothing really. I was just really in the mood to kill a woman. And so I left my wife in bed, got out, drove around looking for a victim, and she was there, and I just found her, and I wanted to watch her die. That's pretty horrible. But what's even more horrible, I think, and what got national coverage was that in the midst of her murder, as she was screaming for help, an alleged 38 different people heard her or watched her being killed from the windows and did nothing to intervene and did not even call the authorities until the deed was done. It was what psychologists later would call the bystander effect. It, was, uh, it swept the nation. It, the outrage was unbelievable. And it shows us that, really, there's something horribly wrong in this world. And that's not something most of us will do. But when we hear a story like that, it makes us seriously wonder. It almost forces us into doubt. How does such a thing happen? Where does something like that come from? Let me tell you a story about another person. This man. You see him in prison clothes, and he looks kind of like a, a rough dude. So you might think I'm going to tell you the story about a murderer or a criminal. This man is actually a hero. His name is Witold Pilecki. He's a, he was a captain in the Polish army during World War II. And he'd heard about the rumors of these death camps that the Nazis were running, where they were putting thousands and thousands of Jews to death. And he needed to get the full picture. And so he was the only person to ever volunteer to be imprisoned in one of these camps. He served 945 days he endured in, in Auschwitz, one of the worst, no, most notorious concentration camps. And once he went inside, he began finding ways to create resistance movements within the camp and to get the word out to the rest of the world about what was actually going on because the stories were filtering out, but people just didn't believe the stories. They were too horrific for people to believe the world was in denial, saying these are all exaggerations. This man endured an incredibly horrible imprisonment and he finally escaped after 945 days. And he, when he ran to Allied troops and began to tell the story and propagate that story through the Western media, the universal response was, well, that's hard to believe. This guy had a very rough experience. Surely he must be exaggerating. What's interesting is that when the Allied troops finally came and liberated these camps, the carnage they saw, they realized the exagger it was an exaggeration. They weren't telling enough of the atrocities of what was going on. And you've all seen the films, I think, and I've heard the stories of the atrocities of the Holocaust. Even a person like this, courageously telling the story from eyewitness accounts, 
were dismissed as exaggeration because I think at some point, at some level, we as human beings fundamentally have difficulty with the idea of evil. We have a really hard time answering the question, where does something like the Nazi death camps or the murder of Kitty Genovese while people just watch mutely, just stare at another person losing their life, where does that come from? And as I was researching for this sermon, I, I heard so many other horrible stories. A woman in Dayton, Ohio, who drove her, her car off, uh, accidentally off a bridge into a river, and she was climbing out of that car as it was sinking, climbed onto the roof and screamed, I can't swim, someone help me. And 12 people just stared at her, did nothing, and watched her drown right in front of their eyes. I could tell you story after story after story that makes us ask, How, where does this come from, this complete disregard? for the value of life, for our, our deep moral connection to one another and to God. And as we wrestle with those questions and then we come to this biblical story of Cain and Abel, we're also led to ask, how, how did this first murder come about? And I think it's all related. This first murder lays the foundation and gives the explanation for every murder that has ever happened since, for all the violence, the genocide, the child abuse, the theft, the robbery, everything that we see that is broken and messed up in our world is explained by this one story. And I think the Cain and Abel story gives us the one key core human dysfunction. That thing, that switch that has flipped the wrong way inside of us that leads to all the sin and all the suffering that we observe in the world. Now, maybe it's oversimplifying to trace it back to one thing, but I believe that the Bible bears this out. Do you want to know what that one core dysfunction is? I believe with all my heart that what's fundamentally wrong with humanity is that the center has moved to the wrong place and that we have become self-centered when we were made to be centered around God. Now, that's not a sexy psychological answer, but if you really dwell on it, meditate on it, I think what you'll realize to this story is that that point is made very clearly. That what happens along the way is that somehow the center of the universe begins to migrate more and more and more to the self. Until pretty soon, there's no room in that shrinking universe for God or for anybody else. Everything is regarded and processed with me at the center. And if you begin there philosophically, morally, you'd be astounded what is possible when a person gives in to a growing self-centeredness, a worship of the self. And I know that that sounds weird. All the... You're, you're telling me that the Holocaust, the genocide, the slaughter of people, the massacres in Russia and, and Pol Pot's regime, all that was begun with self-centeredness? Absolutely it was. Because the root of all sin is the love of self over the legitimate love of God. The love of God frees and the love of self constricts the human heart until it becomes capable of things that we absolutely could not believe we're capable of. Let me make the case a little more clear by looking at this Cain and Abel story a little more closely and painting the story of this growing self-centeredness. And here's why I believe self-centeredness leads to sin. Because what's, what happens in the course of self-centeredness is that we begin getting disconnected from every other legitimate relationship in our life. The more self-centered you become, by very definition, the more disconnected and distant you become from everyone around you. You guys have a friend who is really, really self-centered? Anybody? Don't raise your hand or certainly don't point to them if they're in this room. But I would wager every one of us 
grew up with, and maybe he still has that one friend or person we know who is monstrously self-centered. Everything is about them. And let me ask you something. Just naturally, do you gravitate toward that person? When you've got a Saturday free, do you long to spend five or six hours with that self-centered friend? Asking them all day, what do you want to do? Enough about me. Tell me what you think of me. You know, that kind of self-centered friend, right? That, you know, that person, that's the way they talk about themselves. I've been talking about myself all day. Why don't you tell me how you feel about the person that I am? Nobody wants to be around that person because self-centeredness, by very definition, repels. It chokes out room for anyone else. To be self-centered is to say there isn't room for anybody else in this vicinity to be important or have worth. It chokes everyone out. It's that person who says, hey, you want to see a movie? Who's going to be there? What are we going to see? I don't really like sci-fi. I don't want to go. Where are we going to eat? I don't like that kind of food. I don't want to go. And it's that person you just go, you know what, I'm never calling you again. You really suck at this friendship thing. It's all about you. And I want you to know this. Self-centeredness is toxic poison to relationships. And if you're having a hard time making and keeping friends, can I just give you a clue? Look deep and hard at the mirror. Because I think what you'll discover, if you're honest about it, is that somewhere along the way, you became really self-centered. In the same way that people with bad breath never really know their own breath is bad because it's what they smell all the time. Right? I've been accused of such. You know, the people with bad breath don't know their breath stinks. And the people who are self-centered, unless someone tells them and they walk privately and they go, you know, you got to do a little of that with your soul. Like, I do stink. I realize that everything is about me. I do everything in my life on my terms, around my convenience, based on my preferences. No wonder no one else wants to hang with me. I'm always with the person that loves me the most and that I love the most. And this is at the heart of the Cain and Abel story. Let me show you how I say that. Oddly enough, you guys can dim the screen for a second there. Oddly enough, the trouble between Cain and Abel begins at the altar of worship. It's strange how sometimes the, the worst fights start at church. <laughs> I'm not sure why that happens sometimes, but there's something about the passion involved in worship and the passion of friendship. that just There's something volatile there. So here are two brothers coming to do what is right before God. They're giving an offering. And what's interesting is both brothers, though they weren't mandated to do this, they just had different interests. They chose different lines of work. How many of you guys come from families like that where you and your siblings are like doing totally different kinds of work? Anybody like that? Right? In some families, it's like everyone becomes a doctor, everyone goes to the military. There are certain things like that, but it's funny how often in families, siblings just totally take different directions in life, and those choices really affect the relationship they're having. And so here are these two guys coming to give uh, an offering to God. And it doesn't say much in the story. It just says that Cain brought the fruit of the ground and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And that's what it says. And much has been made because we have to explain God's reaction to this. God looks at the worship and he looks at Cain and his offering. He doesn't separate the two. He doesn't say, you know, Cain, I like you a lot, but your offering really it stinks. He doesn't say that. He goes, Cain and his offering. God says, you know, I don't really have much regard for it. If you look at the Hebrew word, what it's saying is God didn't even want to really look at it. Regard is to gaze upon or look at and give the dignity of eye contact. And God looked at Cain and his offering and just said, I'd rather not really look at you right now. 
can't even look at you. I don't like what you've brought here. I don't like what that represents. I don't like the way you're approaching me. Then he looks at Abel's offering and at Abel and he goes, what you brought, I really like. Something about this is right. And he accepts that offering. And for us as human beings, and because so many of us had serious sibling issues, rivalries in the family, unfinished business with our parents and wanting their their favor, a lot of us cannot read the story in neutrality, can we? A lot of us read the story wrapped up in our own family story and we smack the table and say, that is so unfair. God is just like my father. So random, so arbitrary. Oh, goody two-shoes, the young one always gets everything. And before you know, you're not even reading Cain Abel, you're reading Dave and Steve. And like, what just happened? What, what just happened? Now, that's not my family story. I'm, I'm just saying to you, though. I, I, I've heard so many stories about these issues that exist in family. And I know that that's the way most of us are going to end up reading it. It doesn't seem like God is giving Cain a fair shake. But he arbitrarily... and just surprises him. In fact, we picture Cain being really hurt and surprised. Like, what? I don't get it. But what's interesting is when you read in, in verse 7, God makes it very clear that whatever was necessary to produce a, an acceptable offering had already been communicated to these men. It wasn't written for us to read, but there's no doubt in my mind as we read that, that God had already told them what was required and the failure was not one of knowledge, but one of obedience. The real issue is not that Cain had no idea how to make an acceptable offering, but that he had simply chosen for his own reasons not to do that. Look at what verse 7 says. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. The verse before that in verse 6, God asked... Cain a very important question. He said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? I don't know about you guys, but I find myself saying this to our kids a lot when they're unrighteously angry. You know, like my kid does something really bad and then we ground him and they get all angry at us, right? That, that kind of happened this morning, in fact. And so I was a little late getting here because we had to deal with an issue where you give discipline to a kid. And here's the funny thing about the human nature. They did wrong We proved the case they did wrong. They got an unpalatable punishment and they were angry at us. You're so mean. And and that's the, I can't understand that. And so God asks his kid the same thing we ask our kid. What are you angry for? Why are you acting like someone came out of a blind corner and just jacked you and clocked you out? Nobody did that. You knew this was coming. The rules have been clearly communicated. There is a way in which you do things, and there is a way in which you don't. The issue here is not one of ignorance, but one of obedience. This is the core issue. And what he's saying to Cain is, there's no difference in my eyes between you and your brother. I would have accepted any offering that was brought to me in the way that I requested to be brought to me. There is a right way and a wrong way to relate to God. Why is that so hard to understand? I mean, there's a right way and a wrong way to give flowers to somebody. It, it, you know, if, if this was a flower and Hans is my girlfriend, I, this is the wrong way to give a flower. Hey, got those for you. Enjoy them. Give that back to me. That's my checkbook. Right? Now, 
you may be thinking as a pragmatist or maybe even as an engineer, what's wrong? We deliver the product. Is there in the right hands? I mean, what's the problem? You got what you asked for. Yeah, I did. But I wasn't so much after a bunch of flowers that are going to die. I was after what those flowers represented. And as a result, and we understand this, in every human relationship, right? Every human relationship, there is a right way and a wrong way to approach the person. If you should ever be paid the great honor to meet the president at the White House, you will not walk up and go, Yo, what's up, B.O.? Right? You're not, you'll probably be escorted out. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And what God said is, listen, I'm not just sitting here randomly picking favorites. That has nothing to do with my character. My heart is for all people. That is echoing throughout Scripture. God loves everyone. But He will not simply erase protocol because it's bad for us to think that God is somehow just just this guy waiting idly by while we treat Him any way we want. There is a right way and a wrong way to relate to God. Now we know that, but we still make choices regarding that one way or the other. Right now today, in your relating to God... You are making choices. And I will wager that your closest friends can tell you what choice you've already made. Because here's the way we can divide humanity as it relates to our relationship with God. There's two two groups of people. One group has approached God the way God has told us He wants to be approached, on God's terms. And the other group has chosen their own way of approaching God and are insisting on approaching God on their terms. That's really the dividing line between Cain and Abel. We have some indication, we don't want to make too much of this, but Abel brought his first fruits. He brought his very best stuff, whereas Cain just kind of brought an offering. It's a pragmatic view. In the end, the same stuff, you know, we're going to sacrifice some crops, big deal. And that's probably Cain's attitude. But I don't want to make too much of the quality or the quantity of Cain's gift, because that's not really the issue. The issue is that in some way, Abel profoundly obeyed the Lord. He said, I don't know why it makes sense. I don't, I mean, truthfully, Lord, the firstborn sheep here in this herd is a loser. The third one is really juicy and plump. I mean, if you knew what you're, but for some reason, God just said, I want the very first. It's not because God's hungry and he wants goats, okay, or or sheep. It's because God wants to know whether we, we really honor him with the very best of what we have or not. And as a result, that is the terms in which God is saying to us, this relationship is important. It must have rules of engagement. And I will give them to you so you don't have to throw virgins into volcanoes trying to figure out what makes me happy. I'm telling you what I want from you. Simply come to me by that route and I will accept you and we will enjoy relationship. But There's a lot of people who will not go there with God. They're obstinate. In everything, they've become self-centered. As a result of that, they decide that everything, including that relationship with God, will be done on their terms. There's some people who just have a, a real problem with authority. No matter what you say, even the rightness of the content, it's the fact that someone besides them is being made the center, and they instinctively resist that. Can you flash the slides up again? I want to show you a picture. Do you guys you remember this toy? It's called a Spirograph. Raise your hand if you ever had one. I, oh man, I'm, I'm so tempted to buy another one. That was one of my favorite toys as a kid. I just love, I used to sit there all day. Now, you'll notice when you look at the wheels that there are all kinds of holes in the wheel, right? 
Okay? And obviously, none of the holes are in the center, right? Because that will be boring, right? But here's the point. Depending on where you stick your pencil, the drawings come out completely different. The same wheel, the same ring, same pencil, but simply depending on where you poke the hole, the center, the new center, determines the outcome and the final product. Do you get that idea? You see where I'm going with this. For a lot of us, the real, the real problem with our lives is not the way we're going about living them, but the center around which we're building them. The human life was not made for, to have itself at the center. Whenever you see that dysfunction ensues, I promise you this. Every problem in every family that has ever come about can be traced back to the ruthless self-centeredness of one person at least in that family. We were not made to build life with us at the center because we simply aren't strong enough to hold it. When we put the center in the right place, something amazing happens and something consistent happens in our lives. You know, I wonder if this reflects on you guys and where you might be in your life. Because I've been thinking about this a lot for me. Are you coming to God on His terms or on your terms? I don't think there's a huge mystery about what God wants from us. He's been pretty clear. It's not always easy to stomach, but it's not confusing to understand. I think the biggest problem with the New Testament and the Gospels is not that they're confusing, but unacceptable to me. Can I get an amen? Do you realize when I read, when when some jerk slaps you on one face or passes you over for a promotion or cuts you off on the road or breaks up with you unceremoniously, when some jerk does that, you turn the other cheek. You ask for more. Thank you, sir. May I have another? That doesn't make any sense to me. That's unacceptable. The problem with the Gospel... It's not that it's hard to understand, but it's hard to accept. And so I start to rewrite the book and say, you know what? I'm sure Jesus would understand. Even he couldn't forgive this guy. This guy is messed up. And I'm going to rewrite the book so that somehow I can produce a Christianity that makes sense to me. A Christianity that even I could manage to live out. And the truth is, you can. You'll be comfortable. But after a while, you'll miss the whole point. No one needs to be a Christian to have a religious thing to do. We need, a, we need to be Christians because we need Christ. And Christ will not come into our lives on the periphery. He, we, he must be and remain the center or He's irrelevant in our lives. And that is why a displacement of the center away from God to us, self-centeredness, starts to drive a wedge between us and God. You cannot maintain a Christian life or a relationship with God unless He is properly seated at the center of that. And if somehow you've arrived at a Christianity that you're comfortable with because you've decided the terms of engagement, I'm going to tell you right now, that is likely not the Christianity that God had in mind for you at all. And I would also wager that the fruit you're enjoying in your life is nowhere near as rich as all the stories you keep hearing about on WMBI as people weep and talk about the provision of God, the faithfulness of God, how they're joyful every morning when they wake up and you just want to smash your elbow through the window because it doesn't sound anything like the life you've had. The real issue is who is at the center. I was going to tell you a story about, well, maybe I'll quickly tell you this story. That's a very familiar sight for me. I have been pulled over an estimated 30 times by law enforcement officers. It's my way of evangelizing to the police community. 
um, and uh, have yet to lead any of them to the Lord. But there's one time that, um, some of you may have heard this story before. I happen to have a weapon in the car. It's a long story. But it was a Haitian machete. And I just had it tucked in right where the parking brake was. And the police officer, I cut him off in traffic, and he had pulled me over. And so he was unmarked car, though. So, you know, how, how was I to know? And he, he was about to just write me the routine ticket. He glanced over, saw the handle of the machete, and all of a sudden his countenance changed. And he said, sir, put both hands on the edge of the window and, and, and uh, remain still. And I said, what? And I looked over where his eyes were. And he, I did a very stupid thing. I said, oh, oh that? And he, I started grabbing for the knife and started opening the door and saying, no, no, this is a souvenir from my brother's girlfriend. She went to a mission. And I, I started getting out of the car. And the minute I clicked open the door, he grabbed me. He's a big dude. Grabbed me by the scruff right here. And he led me to the front of my car. It was a little sports car. It was real low. And he smashed me down on the hood really hard, and then he took my hands behind my back, and he handcuffed me, right? And uh, he happened to find another weapon in the glove box, too. <laughs> That's another really long story. It's a, it's a gun, but uh, really, it's a toy gun, but it's a long story. The point is, I learned that day that when you're dealing with an authority figure, and they, they dictate the terms of engagement, there's a reason for it. And if you, if you start looking at that situation from your perspective, like you have a story, a perfectly good explanation, you're going to behave in a way that will probably get you killed. There is a wrong way and a right way to relate to authority. And I'm so happy with the turn that Christianity's taken, where we're not in this austere monastic movement like in the medieval days where people are flogging themselves and poking themselves with needles just to feel godly. I love that we can be free in Christ, that intimacy is a big part of our understanding of life with God. But let's never forget that at the end of the day, the being with whom we are being intimate, this being, is none other than the Creator and the Supreme Being, the Master of all things. He's not my fluffy bunny. He is not my buddy Jesus. He is the King, the Creator, the Lord of Lords. And if He is God, should there not be some sense of humility with which we respond to and approach Him on His terms and not on our own? Who are we to define the terms by which we will relate to God? And if we can be so self-centered in our relationship with God, how does the rest of humanity stand a chance with us? How will we ever displace ourselves from the center in any other relationship if even with God we insist on, inv- in, on producing a relationship with us at the center? My terms. I'll come to church when I can. I'll read the Bible when I feel like. I'll go on missions when I'm good and ready. I'll give whatever I think is reasonable for my budget. I will, I will, I will do everything in a way that makes sense to me. That is what Cain did. He brought an offering that made sense to him, but had nothing to do with what God had required of him. And as a result, his choice disqualified him. His choice. It's clear from the text that Cain remained angry at somebody else. That's typical of people who do wrong. But for all his protests, I believe that Cain knew deep in his heart he had done wrong. It's just like the college student, you know, who's all angry. Oh, man, that final test was ridiculous. It was so hard. It was so unfair. I can't believe I got a D. I'm going to complain. I'm going to write a letter to the dean. And even with all that vigorous protesting, they know in their heart. But also, I didn't really study that hard. I should have gone to more classes. I should have worked a little bit more diligently at it. You know, it's so easy to blame someone else 
for what's messed up with our situation. But at the end of the day, God creates an equal opportunity for everyone to approach Him, to enjoy a life in relationship with Him. He defines the terms, and we make a choice about that, one way or the other. And I want to lovingly challenge this congregation this morning. If you have ended up building a Christianity on your terms, and you're not approaching God on the terms that He has laid out, you're not going to really get to know Him. You're not. You may end up very much like Cain, having enough good sense not to cut God out completely, but never really being in that circle with God. You know, let me move on um, to another thing, because I think this is also a little closer to home, but it's pretty related. And it is the fact that when we become self-centered, it doesn't just create distance with us and God, but that same insulation, that buffer that we want between us and God, starts to expand to other people. It becomes harder and harder for others to fit into the fabric of our lives, to have a legitimate place at our table. I want you to notice something about the, these first few verses here. Verse 2 and then 8 through 11. In just that short span, look how often Abel is referred to as Cain's brother. In fact, he doesn't even get mentioned as just another man. You would think, based on verse 1, oh, Eve says, by the grace of God, the Lord's help, I have gotten a male child, a man. And she's happy about that. Cain has identity. But then the next verse, and if you're a younger sibling, you know how this feels. Oh, and again, she bore his brother, Abel. Abel has no identity but that he is the brother of Cain, the younger brother. But that is done for a purpose, to emphasize again and again for Abel's benefit. That this is not just some stranger you've killed, this is your brother. The person you feel so divorced from is your flesh and blood. And what you've done, you've done not against an enemy or an adversary or a stranger, but your own brother. Look how many times he makes the point. Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother. He rose up against his brother. Where is Abel? Your brother. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The voice of your brother's blood. And it received blood from your hand, your brother's blood. Do you see how often God is making the case? You are connected to this man. He's not just a human being who made you angry. He has another identity and place in your life, and you've completely denied it in the way that you've treated him. It can't have been easy to be Cain and Abel, the first generation of human beings living in a screwed up world because your parents messed up, right? And like, tell us the story again when things are great because you ruined it for us. Tell us again how you used to walk around naked and no one cared and you eat everything in this beautiful garden because I'm sitting here swinging this hole and working the plow and I, it stinks and I hate you. I hate the world you gave me. Any of you guys ever feel like that? You hate the world you were born into? The family? The nationality? The circumstances? Why was I born to you? I never asked to be on this crummy planet. And you have this bitterness and the, the cards are stacked against you, aren't they? And everything in you wants to feel the victim and say, I can't believe from my birth, this is my life. Why should I ever find a motivation to do what is right when I was born into everything that is wrong? I can't imagine what it was like to be these guys, the very next generation. And you see it every time you look into your dad's eyes. Failure, regret, echoing memories of everything he'd lost. Some of you know what I'm talking about because your father lost everything once. And for the rest of his life, he walked around with a very hollow look in his eyes. He used to be someone. 
And today, he feels like the shell of who he once was. Imagine being born into that for the very first time. Having no precedent, no stories to learn from. Figuring it all out in this fallen world by yourself. So Cain and Abel, if they had any predisposing factors to lead them to sin, they had some good excuses right in place. What's interesting is, these two brothers born into the same situation respond very differently. Suggest to us that circumstances alone don't define our lives. That somehow, even in the midst of adversity, with every reason to go the wrong way, God gives us the freedom to choose Him and to choose what is right. This past week, I had the blessing of watching two very good films. Okay? I watched Defiance and Slumdog Millionaire. I highly recommend both of them to you. They're very different movies, okay? I mean, for example, Defiance has no musical number at the end. But both are fantastic films. Now, let me tell you something about these films that I was thinking about all week. They're... Just All right. Uh, let, me, let me just tell you... Um, there's a common thread that runs through these two films. Among other things, what I saw was each one of them is ultimately the story of two brothers who find themselves living in a circumstance of great adversity and they end up responding to that pressure in very different ways. In each case, one of the brothers is a fighter. He wants vengeance. He hates the situation he's born into. He resents it and he will make it better by the, the strength of his own hand, even his closed fist if need be. He will shed blood to bring justice to his life because he hates what he's gotten. And as a result, that brother's choices begin to repel others away from him. But then there's another brother who chooses another way. Let's bring people together. He accepts the situation for what it is and seeks to endure it. Now, I'm not going to give too much more of the story away, but I haven't really given anything of the plot away except to say that in the end of the day, we are free to make choices. And the life we end up enjoying or not enjoying, whether we have people near us or far away from us, whether we feel close to God or far from Him, so much of that is determined by who is at the center of our lives, and we have choices about that. We have something to say about that. Now, you can be a Christian home in the sense that your family comes to church and still know deep in your gut that Christ is not the master of your house. That when you walk into your home, there's really no discernible difference in atmosphere or anything from the home that doesn't worship Christ. We're big fans of Jesus, but we are not His subjects and He is not our King. I say I like my friends, but the truth is I love myself so much more than I like anybody else. I know myself a long time. I've known myself all my life. And I really love me. I'm awesome. I haven't met anyone who's as close to me as me. Isn't it understandable why everything in my life is about me? Now, I know that's a pretty common thing for pastors to say. It's an easy target to hit. It's not about you. I throw that dart. I'm going to hit something. The truth is most of us, we scrape off the little piece of spinach and forget that big leaf hanging off our teeth. I mean, it's easy to go, yeah, I should probably think about how self-centered I am and still miss the boat on honestly how self-centered we really are. If you have the courage to do it, Find a friend you trust, someone who loves you enough that you could take a few cuts from the razor. He said, give it to me straight. 
Am I a self-centered person? Is there, is there a way in which I strike you as being that kind of person that Cain was? It's really self-centered. Ask him. And I think you might get an answer that is shockingly honest and a little bit hard to hear. You know, you can dim that slide. Now. I don't want people to think about movies. The more Cain began to stew over the rejection of his offering, the more angry he got. The Lord had corrected him very clearly. He said, Cain, look, I'll take you and your offering. But you know the rules. You know how this works. I want you to come to me the way I said. And if you do it, I will gladly receive you into my arms. That was the Lord's word. He tried to correct Cain, but it's clear that Cain didn't receive it. Because he walked away from that encounter, stewing in anger. And the more he thought about it, the more he decided, I'm not the problem. That little upstart, that goody two-shoes, younger brat of a brother who's gotten everything all the time, he's the problem. And he began thinking about his brother, not as the little kid he used to run around the fields with and throw rocks at. And, you know, he thought of his little brother as the competition, as a thief of his own glory, the one who took from him what should have been his. That story is repeated throughout the Bible. Younger brothers taking things from the older brothers and the older brothers resenting it. As I think about the transformation that happens in Cain's mind, he begins to dehumanize and objectify his brother. His brother's no longer able. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, a brother from the same mother. You know what I'm talking about? We are family. And he begins forgetting that and starting to look at Abel and sees only a guy, a symbol of all his insecurities and his inadequacies. Cain's righteousness indicted, or I mean Abel's righteousness indicted Cain's unrighteousness. And what's so interesting to me is people who are in that situation, instead of using their energies to get right with God and others, they begin to do destruction. This twisted logic goes something like this. I can't be good, so I'm going to eliminate everyone who's better. And by virtue then, I will actually look good compared to what's left of the competition. I don't understand that psychology, but then I kind of do. You know what I mean? It's a strange way of thinking, but it's everywhere. Why don't you just use the energy to reconcile, to get right, to do what is within your power to do? Why instead waste your energy stewing, fanning the flame of bitterness, putting more logs in the fire of hatred and anger and regret, wishing you could turn back time when there's no way you can? Why not just begin again and get right with God and others? But instead, Cain won't go there because that would threaten to move the center back to God where it belonged. And he was holding firmly on. And as a result, what he does is he whispers into his brother's ear, Hey, bro, why don't you go for a walk with me in my fields? You know, you're always out there with the sheep, but I've got some amazing fields. Come out with me. And as they're walking, Abel's probably going, This is a pretty barren field and there's all these big holes dug into the ground. What's going on? And next thing you know, he looks up and bam! Rock in the forehead. He's a goner. And for the first time, one human being has the blood of another on his hands. That's cold. Do you know what it takes to lull someone else into a false sense of security? And when they're feeling safe and trusting you, you rise up against them and just murder them? Do you have any idea how cold that is? I can't picture doing that to a stranger or even my enemy. To do it to your own brother, your little brother, I can't even fathom. Where does that come from? This process of self-centeredness 
begins to desensitize you to everything. It allows you to start objectifying and dehumanizing other people until they start becoming symbols and props and not real human beings to you. And that's required because psychologically we have an inbuilt protection from God. You can't just outright hurt another human being unless there's something seriously wrong with you. And so we have these games we play to keep dehumanizing and objectifying. We speak of people in the urban poor as just all, all those hood rats, you know, those guys, those gangbangers. We don't care anything about them. We don't understand them. But we just, we just stereotype them all to one group that we don't want to look at. All those, those Muslims out there who are extremists, you know, all of them are just the same. They just want to blow stuff up. And, and we don't even listen to the story. We don't think about anything. This is the way we do it. We dehumanize and objectify everyone that we don't want to engage because it gives us the space to hate them uncritically. You wonder about how somebody who was an English teacher in Germany could be pulling the lever on a gas chamber in, in Auschwitz a couple years later. Do you wonder how that transformation takes place? How does a guy who was an English teacher start slaughtering hundreds of thousands of innocent Jews? How do you do that? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the very, the very process we're outlining here. You have to dehumanize that Jew because if you look at him as somebody's daughter or somebody's father, there's no way you can do it. And so you talk to them as if they're vermin, an infestation. They're the ones who murdered your Jesus. Whatever you've got to say so that you can begin putting distance between you and your fellow man so that you're safely able to commit atrocities. When I was studying a little bit about the genocide in Rwanda, my wife happened to be in Burundi, which is the next country over, two years before the genocides took place. And so I was really interested in the stories coming out. And as the Hutu militias were slaughtering 800,000 Tutsis, mostly with machetes, just hacking them to pieces, I've seen brutally graphic photos of the hacked up pieces and the body parts. It is really hard to look at. I thought, how does, it, how does this happen? You've got to understand, a lot of the people swinging the machetes, they were murdering somebody who used to be their kid's teacher or their next door neighbor, and suddenly all you are is what? And you know what the word was that they used over and over in the propaganda? The Tutsis are cockroaches! Cockroaches. What does anybody in any culture do to a cockroach? That's a universal language. You stomp them out. Nobody keeps cockroaches as pets. Nobody welcomes them into their home. They are always a bad sign, even in a starving nation. And so that's what they did. The geniuses behind this genocide began referring to the Tutsis as cockroaches. And as that chant started crying out, people said, You're no longer my kid's teacher. You're no longer my former pastor or my neighbor. You're a cockroach. You're the reason all the stuff is bad in our country. You're the reason I'm poor and I will kill you. And they were able to do it. You know this desensitization, this dehumanizing, it even happens at a national level. This apathy with which we live, this am I my brother's keeper attitude, it's everywhere. It's even there at an international level. How many of you guys think that America is really, really generous in foreign aid to the world? I thought that. And, and you know, I really thought that because I looked at the hard numbers. We give between 35 to $50 billion out of the government funds to foreign nations. 35 to $50 But do you realize that that's not all that much? We might be the single greatest giver simply dollars for dollars. But when you put it down to a, a proportion of the gross national income... Okay? In other words, it's like the richest guy giving 200 bucks. Wow, that's a lot to people in a poor country. It's nothing to him. As a function of gross national income, among the 22 most developed nations on earth, 
Guess where the U.S. ranks? 22nd. We are dead last in generosity when it comes to a proportion of our wealth. That's a problem to me. I'm ashamed of that as a citizen of this country. And sure, it's not, I mean, we're earning it, we're making it, you know, but is the world supposed to be our problem? A lot of people like to say that on the radio. I think that God would say, I wish it would be. I wish my richest kid would take care of his brothers. I wish he would feel a greater sense of urgency about that because we talk about population control and all that. We don't need population control. There's plenty of wealth and plenty of food and plenty of space on this planet. Just drive from here to Champaign, Illinois, and there's living proof. We got room to spare, okay? We have space. What we don't have is generosity. It's all pulled in little places. The apathy with which, with which the rich conduct their lives without thinking much about it. We hear a number like 35 billion and I sleep better at night. Not realizing we're dead last behind even Greece. Who's heard of Greece? And Greece is outgiving us proportionally in foreign aid. And that to me is so messed up. I, I get a little apoplectic thinking about it. I don't know what to say. I want to put a big I'm sorry on the cover of my passport when I travel. Could you flash the slides up for a second? I'm going to show you something. By the way, that's proof. We are dead last in giving. And, and not by a small margin either. Do you realize that we in America overeat? And uh, my, we just got the Wii Fit. And I hate that thing because it told me the other day that I'm officially overweight. I'm overweight. <laughs> Stupid machine. Said my BMI was like 26 or something, and I should get down to about a 22. And I was really depressed because I was watching that bar go up, and it goes, "Oh man!" It went into the overweight zone. I'm a little bitter. The truth is, we don't eat to live anymore. We eat for taste, and we eat. that's not an undue, unreasonable meal in America. I mean, maybe to some of you that's grossing out, but I'm watching Man vs. Food, and that's like people in America eat like this. Do you realize we spend 35 to 50 billion dollars annually on weight loss? That's equal to what we spend as a nation on foreign aid. We're spending that much just to take off the overeating we've done and we're not helping the nations eat. And if you just look at life in terms of human national boundaries, sure, we've got a case. It's our money. But you can't as a Christian look at it that way. You've got to look at the whole human family. This is where we're spending our money. We've got the strongest, mightiest military force on God's earth. And if we can sit by and watch things like what's happening in the Darfur, and just say, well, that's not technically genocide, because, and we're playing word games while all these people are dying. Some estimated 400,000 people are dying, and we're not ready to call it genocide according to the official guidelines of the definition of the word. That's messed up. Now, you may be thinking, are you like uh, saying that we should be like on Rush Limbaugh's side and be the world's policeman? I don't know what I'm saying other than if we have the strongest stick, we should at least swat a few people who are killing off their brothers and sisters. We should protect those who are helpless. I'm enjoying the season of 24 for that reason because it's posed that very moral question. Should we step in and help others at the cost of our own countrymen? If you look at it simply through the lens of citizenship, never. But if you look at us as connected morally to one another as God's children, then we who follow Jesus Christ at the very least should lose some sleep over the apathy with which our government and our nation 
thinks about world affairs. Pastor Matt was just sharing with me over and over after he came back from Europe that in Europe, all the news is about the whole world, but in America, all the news is about America. Raise your hand if you can stand up and deliver the latest news from Great Britain even. Anyone? What's going on in France these days? How about in South Korea? Some of you might know some of that. I don't even know the president's name right now in South Korea. I'm so American. It's just a wall around us, and we just don't care. And I think that breaks the heart of God. That apathy, that disconnection, that self-absorption is at the heart of all dysfunction on the globe, whether at a family level or at a national level. It's all the same thing. When you don't care about anyone but yourself, you will contribute to the growing pain and the weight of suffering in this world. You will become capable of things you never thought you could because apathy becomes atrocity very quickly. Very quickly. But when God is the center, as He ought to be, then slowly He begins restoring things to the way they were meant to be. That is the work Jesus has come to perform. He hasn't simply come to save one soul after the next, but His redemptive plan is more far-reaching than that. He's restoring the very foundation of what was broken. There was a time in this universe when everything was held together by the love of God, and people connected to God and to each other in unbroken, unsinful fellowship. And it is through Christ that we can begin rebuilding, reforming those severed bonds. We can actually start coming to God on His terms. Stop worrying about loving ourselves because we have been so greatly loved by Him that we can afford to let go of the obsession with self. Let God worry about me. Let me worry about what worries God, what's on His heart. I, I really hope, I really, really hope that as a church, we can recommit to this holistic, redemptive agenda of God. To really come to God on His terms and not on ours. And if that's you, be honest about it this morning. Let the Lord confront you on that. You're trying so hard to make the rules up between you and God. He says, just come to me the way I've laid out and we'll have a relationship. And if somehow, as you've lived at the center of your life for so long, others are getting pushed to the edge, you find that you have a hard time caring about things like the Darfur, about the plight of the homeless in your own community, about the broken heart of your younger sibling who's never really felt approved by the family, and you've gone on living your happy, accepted life, never even thinking about what it's like for them. If you can go on like that, let the Lord rebuke your heart this morning. Say, start making room for other people. Don't be so self-absorbed that you become uprooted and disconnected from the people you're meant to share and bless on this earth. And I think we can all stand to make a collective recommitment to put to death our apathy and start really caring about our fellow human being. I know that doesn't sound like a typical evangelical message. It sounds more like the social gospel movement, but we've got to care about our fellow human being. And I pray that God will lead you to do that. I know as a church, that's one thing we, we want to do really together, is to care a lot more about God's whole world. And I hope that we will really get there together as a family. Let's pray. Let's pray. You know, this premise that self-centeredness is the bedrock of all sin, 
That is something that requires some real reflection for, for the Lord to do His work through that in you. You can't skip past this quickly. And I'm going to just invite you to sit quietly in the presence of your God and ask the question just once. Lord, who is at my center? Is it me? And listen quietly for the answer. Lord, as a nation, we just repent. The fact that we overeat and diet and overeat and diet while 25,000 die every day for lack of food. I'm so sorry, Lord, that we're able as people who know Christ to sleep soundly at night with that knowledge. I'm so sorry for the way that that same apathy has worked its way into our hearts at the family level, even at the church level, for the way that the center has crept ever so subtly away from you to us. And ever since that happened, we have lost our focus and we've lost our way. And I pray, Lord, that you would redraw the center around you again. For those in this church, Lord, who are engaging you strictly on their own terms, I pray, Lord, that you will free them in their hearts to stop controlling everything and come to you, come home running to you. I pray for those who are finding themselves this morning in broken relationships. We're just like Cain. The more we think about our situations, the angrier we become, the more bitter we become. Father, come and help us move past the way of Cain. Repent before you. Spend our energies getting right instead of getting even. And Lord, erase any apathy in our hearts. Awaken us. Cause us to once again be able to love our fellow human beings as you called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.